When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me today are Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor from New York, and Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent, calling us from Indonesia. We're also joined by Brendan Barber, the former head of the TUC, uh, the UK trade union movement, who is now the deputy chairman of the Banking Standards Board. This week, we'll be looking at the changing of the guard at Goldman Sachs, UBS's ban in Hong Kong from the equities market, and also UK efforts to professionalise banking. First, though, to Goldman Sachs. And Ben, you've been writing reams overnight about the changes at the top of Goldman Sachs, fueling expectations that the chief executive role is about to change. We have had a surprise exit, Harvey Schwartz, leaving David Solomon as the natural successor to Lloyd Blankfein. Tell us the full story. You've been writing very colourfully about a cage fight between the two men to be the natural successor. It's a very colourful story, and I hope I've done it justice. But yeah, these two guys, David Solomon and uh, Harvey Schwartz, uh, at the end of 2016, when Gary Cohn, who had been the heir apparent to succeed Lloyd Blankfein and Goldman Sachs, he, of course, took off for Washington, answering the call of Donald Trump. And so uh, Goldman clearly had succession in mind back then because Lloyd Blankfein had just shrugged off a bout of cancer. He knew it had to uh, make a clear line of succession. So these two guys were elevated, both of them very similar in appearance, of course, a famous cover of the annual report with Blankfein and Solomon and Schwartz all together, three of them bald and suited. And now it's become clear that Harvey Schwartz, he's taking off. So David Solomon is the heir apparent. It's really his job now to lose. And tell us a bit about what that signals in terms of Goldman's future strategy, because Harvey Schwartz was very much cut from the same cloth as Lloyd Blankfein, a former trader, commodities trader, whereas David Solomon is very much from the other side of the Goldman empire, having been brought in from Bear Stearns, of course, some time ago, but very much having grown up within Goldman on the investment banking, the advisory side of the business. That's right. Um, Goldman likes to set up these internal contests using one exec from one part of the bank and uh, another from the other, and just putting them head-to-head, as we've said, like a cage match to let the most sort of sharp elbowed and aggressive guy, it's always a guy, I hasten to add, win. And David Solomon, yes, he's unusual because he's not homegrown from Goldman. He came in from Bear Stearns in 99, and Bear Stearns, as we all know, is probably the most hungry, the most aggressive bank on the street before it collapsed. I'm looking this week at doing a 10 years on story from its collapse and its acquisition by JP Morgan. And just looking back over some of the obituaries of Ace Greenberg, who died a few years ago, he described Bear Stearns' people as being PSDs. That's poor, smart, and desirous of riches. And I think David Solomon wasn't very poor to start with, but he certainly demonstrated a very ruthless edge in ascending that very greasy pole at Goldman. 
A final word then in terms of timing of succession. As you say, Lloyd Blankfein did have a bout of cancer a few years ago. There was a scare that he might have to leave on health grounds. But he has bounced back and 12 years after taking over as Goldman Sachs chief executive, he shows no sign of wanting to wind down. That said, there's a lot of speculation about maybe a handover of power towards the end of this year or early next. Well, the official story from Goldman, uh, of course, you have to take these official stories with a pinch of salt, is this, there was a board meeting in February at which Lloyd Blankfein presented a sort of dossier on both the candidates because both had been agitating for some kind of resolution to his long tenure. And the board agreed with Blankfein that David Solomon was the best suited to take over because Goldman, as we all know, has been pushing more towards investment banking than trading in recent years. But as far as the timeline is concerned, that's still an open question. Mr. Blankfein is very upset with the Wall Street Journal story on Friday, which appears to have put pressure on him to you know, give us a date. But from what I hear, the end of the year, perhaps early next year, would be a decent time to stand down because Goldman Sachs is turning 150 next year. Blankfein, a history buff, would be a nice way to cap his tenure. Well, we shall watch that story with eagerness. Ben, thanks very much for joining us and explaining the story. So let's go over to Asia now, where Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent, has been looking at one of the interesting stories to break in recent days regarding UBS and its exclusion from the Hong Kong equities market, or at least part of it. Don, tell us the full story. What's happened here? Sure. So we've been following this case with UBS and Standard Chartered for well over a year now. UBS and Standard Chartered both self-reported in late 2016 that the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong was investigating an IPO that they had worked on. We later learned that it was connected with an IPO called China Forestry that went public in 2009. So the latest development on that is that EBS, their ability to sponsor IPOs in Hong Kong has been suspended for 18 months. It's a pretty significant development here given that the SFC has not really reacted in this way in recent memory. And how much of a business impact will that be for UBS? How important is its IPO franchise to its overall Asian operations? Well, it was very important a few years ago, but I think that business has been struggling. And ever since they came under investigation, we've learned here that you know they've been definitely sponsoring fewer and fewer IPOs. I think the worry was that they would be caught out or suspended during a sponsorship. So it seems like they have kind of wound down that business over the past year. And you mentioned Standard Chartered being caught up in this as well. Do we know what's going on there? No official announcement on any kind of consequences for Standard Chartered yet. It's well known that they were sued by the SFC. That case was actually dropped because the time limit on pursuing that case ran out. But that was the same situation with UBS, and here we are with UBS being suspended. Of course, Standard Chartered no longer has their ECN franchise here anyway. So if something does happen, it would most likely come in the form of a fine for Standard Chartered. Okay, well, thanks for the update on that, Don, and we'll keep watching the development of the equities market in Hong Kong closely and whether in 18 months' time UBS can bounce back. That'll be a fascinating question. Well, finally today, we've been speaking to Brendan Barber, the former head of the UK trade union movement, the TUC, who is now deputy chairman of the Banking Standards Board here. 
That's an organization set up a few years ago to improve the culture and reputation and behavior of the banking sector in the aftermath of the post-crisis scandals. Well, the BSB is about to put out its annual report on standards in banking. But just ahead of that, we've been speaking to Brendan Barber about the topic of professionalism in banking and whether, for example, there should be a stricter standard of qualifications in the sector. Brendan, you have recently been engaged in a project to boost professionalism. Tell us what that is, because it's a fuzzy word, I suppose, but clearly banks could do with being more professional, given the scandals that they all went through, the manipulation, the mis-selling. There's a lot of reasons for banks to get more professional. What has your project concluded? Well, it certainly is a challenge, I think, to get higher standards across the banking sector. The Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards highlighted that, as well as some of the other changes following the crisis and the scandals, like better capital regimes and tightening the risk management uh, within the sector and so on, that the issue of professionalism was a key challenge. And the way we've defined it is by saying that it's about not only the skills and competencies, but also the attitudes and the standards of behaviour that are exhibited by everybody in the sector. Not just the leadership, but everybody in the sector. Let's break this down into sections, because one thing that people will, I suppose, often associate with professionalism is qualifications. Now, I know that you've looked at comparisons between banking and the legal profession and the medical profession and so on. And clearly, those are areas where qualifications are key and standardised. And there are professional bodies that recognise those standards. In banking, it's far more of a patchwork, isn't it? There's a lot of people operating in the banking arena including at the very senior level, who maybe don't have actually any qualifications. Is there something that needs to be changed there? Does there need to be an across-the-board qualification standard? It is different to some of those other sectors with well-recognised professional regimes, the law, medicine, accountancy and so on. Because as you say, in the banking sector, there are a whole range of different skill sets that are relevant to the work of banks, a whole different set of areas of skill and knowledge. So we kind of made the judgment that to look towards a simple approach, if you like, what might seem a rather simple approach of saying, shouldn't there be some single standard qualification requirement, that that was not going to be appropriate for the sector that we're dealing with. So we've defined it in this rather broader way, standards of behaviour, of knowledge of attitudes and so on, and said that we think there are different ways in which all of those issues, firms can make a real difference at driving towards higher standards. And I suppose the big question is then, if it is a looser, more flexible, broader approach, how does that get policed? Because Clearly, it hasn't been well policed either by the industry itself or, to be honest, by regulators, certainly up to the crisis period. Well, the statement of principles that we are publishing is a challenge to the sector, but the BSB is not a regulator. We don't have and don't seek to have you know, powers of enforcement of areas of work where we're encouraging the sector to act. But I do think the statement of principles that we've pulled together not only provides a challenge, it provides a real framework, a real blueprint that if firms engage with this seriously, take this 
as a framework for looking at a whole range of their practices, then we think this can make a real difference. I think it's fair to say that the UK has taken a lead in this post-crisis introspection, if you like, looking from within the industry at how the industry could change to improve. What evidence do you have that other countries around the world are taking your lead? Well, I think there's a lot of interest in other parts of the world. We've had an active dialogue with colleagues in the United States, in some other countries too. At the moment, looking across the Irish Sea, in Ireland, of course, there's an initiative now to look at potentially establishing something with a a similar kind of remit to the remit that the BSB has been following. So this is an area where I think we can chart a way forward that would stimulate a lot of international interest. But a lot of this, you know, will depend on leadership within firms. And that's one of the core messages. And it's an area where I hope we can get past the things that sometimes get in the way of sector-wide work. Of course, firms are always going to compete, but this is an area where sharing good practice, learning from each other, is an area where I think that would add real value. And very finally, and very briefly, if you would, how do you judge the success of what you're trying to achieve here? Well, one of the things that people have said as we've had our discussions, which have involved a lot of not only firms, but professional bodies, a lot of different organisations. One of the things many people have said is that they'd like this to be a sector where people, when they're talking to their friends and neighbours, said that they were proud of the organisations that they worked for. And I think higher professional standards are a big part of giving people that real sense of pride in what they're doing. Well, let's hope it translates into fewer scandals in the future. Brendan Barber, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Ben in New York, Don in Asia, and our guest Brendan Barber from the BSB. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.